0: Hey there, and welcome back to Inside Intercom. This week, we're continuing our growth series, where we'll be picking the minds of practitioners at some of this generation's fastest growing and most successful software companies. Already, we've been joined by folks like Slack's head of growth marketing, Rachel Hepworth, and Eventbrite VP, Brian Rothenberg. These are guests that have started growth teams from the ground up. And hopefully in these chats, we'll expose frameworks and philosophies that can be applied back to growing your own business. Up this week is Gina Gotthilf. Until recently, Gina was the VP of Growth and Marketing at Duolingo, the most downloaded education app in the world. In her five years there, Gina took Duolingo from 3 million users to more than 200 million. And these aren't just signups who've gone dark. Duolingo users complete a whopping 7 billion lessons each month. In short, at Duolingo, growth is fundamentally about retention. Gina stepped away at the beginning of this year to shift her focus and help nonprofits better understand the growth and marketing principles that thrive in today's tech world. So I had her join me on the podcast to share her lessons learned at Duolingo while they're still fresh. We cover how gaming principles influenced her team's growth experiments.
1: We're going to give like a little three-minute presentation to each person in our next meeting about what we thought was effective in this game. Like, oh, look at how they onboard people, like, oh, look at this like metric system for points. Look at how you have this, this set of coins, but you also have this other type of points and how you earn them and how one influences the other. So we were constantly talking about game mechanics.
0: Her most successful retention tactics over the years. There are just
1: certain things like the streak or, or the notifications that have a high leverage in the sense that if you mess with them, you'll see big numbers up or big numbers down. And so you you know those are really worthwhile with your time.
0: In the way growth at Duolingo measured success.
1: Yeah, DAU was our sort of, sorry for the words, but non-bullshit metric. Like that really gave us a sense of whether what we were doing was working out or wasn't working out.
0: If you like what you hear and want to make sure you don't miss any of our future interviews, either in this growth series or our regular chats about product management, design, marketing, and more, just subscribe to our show. You can catch us on Spotify, iTunes, Overcast, and all the rest. Just search for Inside Intercom. Now, let's get into this week's chat, where I'm joined on the line by Gina Gotthil.
1: You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Gina, welcome
0: to Inside Intercom.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So just to set up our chat today, can you give us a quick feel for your career to date? How did you get to where you are today and what you were doing most recently at Duolingo? Uh,
1: My career has been kind of a zigzag. I definitely didn't have like a goal and I went after it and now here I am. I studied philosophy and neuroscience in school. I ended up, what I most wanted to do was to work for a nonprofit after school, but I also wanted to pay rent in New York. So those two things were not really compatible at the time. And I also needed a visa to stay in the U.S. So there were, you know, there were a number of reasons that I just couldn't go into whatever I wanted. So I ended up going into marketing and that was definitely not what I wanted to do, but it's what I've been doing ever since. And it's been pretty awesome. So I worked with some agencies in New York then I went back to Brazil. Tumblr asked me to help them grow in in Brazil and other Latin American countries. So I I led their growth there. And that's kind of how I got into growth, even though it wasn't called growth. It was just like, hey, help us get users with the money, (laughs) thanks. And then I opened my own company to help tech companies grow in Brazil and Latin American countries because I realized there was a big need and I happened to be in this really advantageous position to do that. And then that's how I started working with Duolingo. They were actually one of my clients.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So they came to find you through your your own agency then?
1: Yeah, they, they basically asked Tumblr, like, hey, you guys grew a bunch in Brazil last year. What did you do? And then they referred me.
0: Awesome. And so your first role at Duolingo, didn't you start with PR? Is that right?
1: Yeah, I was a consultant and it, was, it wasn't it was really like called PR. It was just like, hey, help us grow <laughs> again. I just ended up resorting to PR a lot because it just, you know, it's something I could reach out to on my own. I didn't have to touch product. It didn't require any money. And I really felt like there was a cool story to tell, which is similar to what I did with Tumblr. And it really worked out in terms of getting new users. And I ended up doing that all over the world.
0: What was that transition like of going from this sort of more classical marketing background to working more with designers and engineers? Did you, did you find that difficult or were there pieces of your background that actually helped make that an easier, more fluid transition?
1: Yeah. You know, nobody ever asked me that. And I think it's such a good question because it was really difficult first, because when you're in marketing in a tech company, you're not taken very seriously. The product people, like engineers, designers, they kind of view marketing as this kind of like side thing that's not really necessary. If you build something cool, people will come anyway and you're just there like having lunches with people and doing whatever other things that you're doing, nobody knows. So to to be in charge and to have people who were engineers and designers report to me was very intimidating to me because I wanted them to know that I was very serious and that I I was, you know, intelligent and I and I knew a bunch and I could help get things done rather than just, you know, a clueless marketer, which is what I thought they thought about me. Um also the skills are very different because when you're managing people in marketing or PR, you kind of get what they're doing or you have a lot of expertise in what they're doing. When you're managing someone in a completely different field, like engineers and designers or product managers or, you know, analytics people, you, you don't have experience doing what they do. And so they're better than you at that thing. Those were a lot of challenges that I had to face early on. But I do think that because I come from a communications background, that helped me in ways that nobody really foresaw. For example, I think I was really good at getting engineers to talk to me and kind of tell me what was going on what was undermined what, what what were difficulties they were facing what kinds of projects they were interested in and you know they weren't used to really talking about themselves all that much and getting designers to sort of speak with talk to engineers and understand each other I think that that part really benefited from the fact that I came from a communications background
0: do you think this is part of a larger trend of, of marketing and product roles blending or are you more the exception of the rule there you think
1: I think it's a trend. I, I don't know if it's a trend that's here to stay. Mm-hmm. I think it's definitely a trend where, you know, certainly, suddenly marketers are being asked to sort of do product-like things, and before we were completely kept separate, like church and state. I think that it is hopefully a, an ongoing trend that marketers are going to be more and more responsible for real metrics and for numbers. And for that, you need to actually, you know, have something to do with the product so that you can actually look at what you're doing and whether it's having the kind of effect that you want and to be responsible for those metrics. But I do think that growth hacking is a little bit of a fad. Mm-hmm. I think that it's a a small part of what marketing is overall, which is to help. Like I said, I was just helping companies grow in the beginning, and it can be PR, it can be social media, or it can be you know paid marketing, or it can be like growth hacks in the product, whatever it may be. I think that that's one goal, and it's you know the question is who's going to report to who, and if I had to guess, I would say that growth marketing will just report into marketing, which is how it used to be.
0: Well, you mentioned metrics there and metrics where I think you've certainly listed as your, your deity at Duolingo, where you and your team had a, a ton of success. I know one thing a lot of people are always curious about with startups is how they got their first users. And Duolingo, I think very famously, one of the founders gave a TED Talk that resulted in the first couple hundred thousand users. So very lucky from that standpoint. But I'm curious, when you arrived, how many users did you have at that time? I know that you were able to take it to more than 200 million eventually.
1: When I started, there were 3 million users. And looking back, you know, well, at the time, I didn't even know what that was. 3 million seemed like a lot. You know, now Duolingo has 300 million users. So mm-hmm. that's crazy. But we were very lucky to have those 3 million, especially because I think that so many startups struggle with like that very beginning, like, how do you find your first few users? And yes, our founder is this guy called Luis von An, and he's the guy who invented the captcha. You know those things uh-huh. that you type on the internet to prove that you're like not a bot?
0: Know them all too well.
1: <laughs> yeah, everyone hates it, but it you know, served a huge utility in the internet all over the world. And then he ended up selling two companies to Google, and he won him a third Genius grant and gave a TED Talk. And so through that TED Talk, he was able to talk about his new project, Duolingo, and we got a lot of our first users that way. The reason why that helped so much is not only because it gained traction, but because we were able to A-B test very early on. Which is something that I think a lot of smaller startups struggle with. So yeah, I was not responsible for three to three hundred million, but I definitely helped.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I think another thing that sort of should be stated to those that don't know the Duolingo story well is that you also never did paid advertising. So what were some of those early A B tests that stick with you? What what stands out the most is just something that either because it did well or it sent you down a crazy path, or it was just memorable.
1: So, you know, in the beginning, I was, like you said, PR, I was doing sort of communications related things, partnerships. I would travel all over the world to launch Duolingo, like to Japan, China, India, Korea, Turkey, like all these places that I had never even been to. I only became sort of head of growth, which is head of this product team that was A-B testing stuff in the last two years of my time at Duolingo. So there were definitely a lot of A-B tests that were done before my time that can be credited with a lot of our growth too, but I can definitely mention some of them and some of the ones that I did in my team, mm-hmm. if that's okay. Yeah, that's great. So here I would say are our most successful A-B tests. First, letting people sign up after checking Duolingo out. It seems like kind of a no-brainer when I say it this way, but the thing is that when you're looking at your funnel, you normally want to get as many people as you possibly can to convert or to do whatever it is that you want them to do. So if you're sending people to duolingo.com or getting people to download Duolingo, you're like, okay, well, that's when I have the most eyeballs on this. I want to get people to sign up right now because then I can email them later and so you know I don't want to lose any of these people um, but turns out that we you know by letting people actually use Duolingo a little bit without signing up which is something that was hard for us to do because we wanted to get them to sign up right we got a much better conversion rate at the end and we tested a bunch. that was actually a blend of things done before my time and during my time basically we tested a lot of different variations, like First, not making people sign up until a very later period. Then asking them to sign up one time or two times or three times and letting them dismiss the message. What we had when I when I started the growth team was basically you did a lesson and then it said, do you want to save your progress or discard your progress? And like discard your progress was a big red button. Mm-hmm. And so... We were like, what if people are clicking on this red button because it's red and not because they want to discard their progress and then they discarded it. Now there was no reason for them to continue and now we lost that user. So that was huge. Just making people see this thing that says, hey, you want to sign up? No, do it later. Do it later until finally we say, now you have to sign up.
0: That was super successful. That's a really, really great example. And I know we just touched on acquisition a little bit, but the most important thing for a product like Duolingo, where you have to go in and experience the success and find that aha moment and continue working towards the ultimate goal for the user and also for the mission for the company is is retention. And I know that you all use daily active users as your sort of North Star metric, but what were some of the sort supporting metrics behind that number? What were you guys monitoring most closely when it came to retention?
1: Yeah, DAU was our sort of, sorry for the words, but non-bullshit metric. Like That really gave us a sense of whether what we were doing was working out or wasn't working out. But there are other metrics that, that definitely were important. And every time we ran an A-B test, we looked at a, a whole slew of metrics to make sure that we weren't just impacting one number out of you know, some sort of luck, or that like we weren't doing something that was causing people to maybe use Duolingo more, but like learn less or do less lessons or whatever. So a couple other supporting metrics were lessons completed, lessons completed per session, number of minutes spent on Duolingo per session, a number of total minutes per day on average per user, and then it depends on the context. We also had, well, we looked at number of people who got from a certain part in the, in the language tree, which was like our curriculum, to another part. And so we had different funnels to see if different experiments impacted whether people got farther ahead or not from mm-hmm. an education standpoint.
0: Well, with 7 billion plus exercises completed by users each month. I think that's the latest number that I've seen. It certainly seems like you've, your team was able to, uh, to get some of that stickiness built in there. We're also you know, helping people actually see the uh, results and benefits of this as well. I mean, what were the types of aha moments you tried to create for users so that they really felt like they were making enough progress and felt encouraged to continue?
1: So I think that the most important thing for us was to get the user to sort of feel some sort of connection with the product. So dueling was very cute, uh, very intuitive. We use language that's very friendly throughout our entire communication, be it email or notification or in the product. And same with our design. And the second thing I think is just to get people to feel like they're learning something. That's what they're there for. They're not just there to play a game. So giving people a sense of like, oh, like I'm learning something. And we we thought about a bunch of different ways to do that, but there was none that fit really well with how the product is designed. Like, for example, oh, maybe we should show like a billboard, you know, at the end of a lesson and then people can read it and be like, whoa, I understand this billboard now, you know, or maybe we can like show like a, a photo of like a newspaper piece and people can read it and think like, wow, I, I understood that. But we just tried to bake that in as much as possible into the experience without... A sort of separate aha moment in the end, and we felt like that was the most core uh, thing that we could
0: do. You mentioned that people aren't there just to play a game; they are there to learn. But at the same time, I think your team did lean a lot on a lot of the principles that people use in the gaming world. Did you find that that was a difficult sort of tightrope to walk, where you were leveraging some of those principles, and if you could mention a few, that'd be great. But then also make sure that learning was the first and foremost goal.
1: Yeah, all the time. So Duolingo was meant to be a game from the get-go. That comes from our founders. They just thought, you know what? Learning is a drag. Learning a language takes forever. We need to find a way to get people to keep coming back. And so making it into a game was something that they baked in from the very beginning. But a lot of what my team did as part of the growth team, and also I know that they're continuing to do this, is to, we, we would basically you know, do things like assign games to different members of the team and say like, okay, this week you're going to play this game, like top grossing games or top downloaded games and you're going to play that game. And then we're going to give like a little three minute presentation, each person in our next meeting about what we thought was effective in this game. Like, Oh, look at how they onboard people. Like, Oh, look at this like metric system for points. Look at how you have this this set of coins, but you also have this other type of points and how you earn them and how one influences the other. So we were constantly talking about game mechanics and applying them to Duolingo with the goal of getting people to stay interested in learning a language and kind of automatically almost like a habit, go back to Duolingo whenever they were kind of bored instead of to to a normal game on their phone. It was, as you said, a a fine line. So we had, you know, our team was the growth team. We were just trying to get more users and users to stick around. There's a separate team that was a learning team and the learning team is extremely important to Duolingo. This year in particular, I know that there's a lot of stuff happening in learning, but it was important to have it that way. And we also had a separate team that was a monetization team. So having those three metrics sort of separate and having, you know, teams Advocate for each one of them was really important because it was, you know, we could have just made a product that was super easy and fun and people would play more of and stick around for more and like whatever, buy more things, but not learn anything at the end. Because if it's easy, it's more motivating, but you're not learning. If it's harder, you might be learning more, but then you might also give up more easily because it's frustrating. And we didn't want to make something that was just there to entertain or to whatever, make money and and get users and be the next Thing that everyone forgot, you know, a year later. So we definitely had to have these hard conversations. And sometimes one team won, sometimes another team won. Like there are things, there are AB tests we launched that like hurt uh, monetization, for example, or there are AB tests that the monetization team launched that hurt our retention. And same goes with learning. Although we I would say that we prioritized learning above all at Duolingo. So that was a little, it was a harder battle if you wanted to fight against the learning people.
0: Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about OffScript. It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser
2: of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring
0: you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So one experiment that I was really interested to ask you about, because it's one of the most well-known things about Duolingo, you hear people taking a lot of pride in it or also they just simply don't want to lose it, is is the streak that you built of continuing the lessons every day. Can you walk me through what the experiments were that you ran for that and how you landed on it as being such a successful strategy? So the
1: streak preceded my time that I don't know actually who came up with that. But it's something that's used a lot in games. You know, when when you do something several days in a row, you can keep a streak. We ran a lot of experiments with that, even in my time, quote unquote, because we realized that just introducing this concept of the streak really helped with retention massively. Like basically, hey, if you use Duolingo several days in a row, you can see this number going up. And then the minute, the day that you forget to use it, that day, that number turns to zero and you have to start again. That was super effective because people just, you know, they don't like, they have loss of version. And they, when you're building your streak, you feel like you're investing into the app and you're building something that you don't, you don't want to lose. In my team, we took that and just experimented with a bunch of different things like making it harder to lose your streak or giving you more of a chance to to earn back your streak by doing some exercises eventually it became a monetization thing where like you if you lose your streak up one day you can pay like a fee and then you can like kind of repair it but we we did play around with that a lot because we knew it was one of our most effective levers in all of Duolingo in terms of retention so it was really worth paying a lot of attention to that similar with you know notifications notifications has a huge effect. Like we were able to improve conversion of our notification by around 5% just by testing the copy or testing with, with timing of sending them. And there are just certain things like the streak or, or the notifications that have a high leverage in the sense that if you mess with them, you'll see big numbers up or big numbers down. And so you you know those are really worthwhile with your time. And then I think another one that might be worth mentioning is we created badges and that was in my time. You know, this came from Foursquare long back in the day, but there's a lot of different apps and games that you can collect badges as you go. And we really wanted to introduce that into Duolingo. And I'm happy to share more later if you'd like, but we actually tried it at first and failed massively and thought the badges didn't work for a whole year. And then we went back to it and decided to try it again. And It was so successful. And, you know, talking about like all these different drawbacks to other metrics that i was mentioning before this was one case where this helped retention it helped monetization it helped learning helped everything because we could just tell people do this for a badge and we can get them to do all kinds of stuff if you offer badges to people so that you know that you can get them to do all kinds of things and to have all kinds of different behaviors that are beneficial to them and are also beneficial to the app so for example Use Duolingo every day is like an obvious one. It's not a a badge, but if you have an X day streak, then you earn a badge. So you really want to get there. Use Duolingo in the morning, use Duolingo at night, or like click on this tab and engage with someone, invite a friend, like buy an item. You know, there's all this different stuff. Some of it, which is related to learning and some of it, which is just related to getting the user to see more of the app and experience more of it, which leads them to like it more and, and, and retain longer, but also just very short-term things too, like invite their friends and buy something on the app.
0: So you basically teed it up for me, but how, how did it do such a 180 like that where you tested it and it just didn't seem to work? You sit on it for a year and then all of a sudden it's this game-changing thing that you've added to the app. Was it the actual experiment? Was it just too early for that type of thing to be introduced? What happened there?
1: It was the experiment. And I can credit my team with like really insisting for badges way after I was like, you know, guys, we shouldn't waste our time. It's too much of an investment. You know, we don't really know what the return is going to be. Because when we first thought, let's introduce badges, we thought, okay, like, why do people like badges? Oh, maybe it's because they really like this feeling of getting something and feeling like rewarded and like they did something good. So we decided to replicate that. You know, we would often come up with the minimum viable tests for things, So, like, instead of creating an entire badge system, what's the simplest thing we can do to test whether that's going to have an effect or not? And if it has an effect, then we can go and build an entire badge system. It's going to take us months. So we just did this thing where, like, if you signed up, you got this pop-up of, like, a girl with balloons. um, And it was basically like this, like, congratulations for signing up thing. In retrospect, it sounds really stupid, and I like, can't even believe that we thought it was going to work, but we were really convinced that that would replicate that feeling of like getting something. And if we saw an increase in metrics there, then we could start including more of those throughout the app, and they would be badges. Um, unsurprisingly, at least to me now, uh, that did nothing. And unfortunately, our conclusion was, well, then it's not worth investing in badges. And so we didn't. And then we spent all this time just kind of trying to shoot for lower hanging fruit, like kind of things that you can test that take less time to develop, less time to design, you know, that would just require less. That may bring us smaller gains than trying to go for these big bets for a really long time. And the whole time my team kept saying, like, let's do badges, let's do badges, let's do badges, let's bring it back. Finally, I was like, okay, guys, fine. Let's." But, you know, if we're going to do it this time, then we should just, like, really think about why that didn't work and let's really invest. Um, so we took all, I don't know if it was, like, two or three months to fully design and implement badges. It seems simple, but like, where do they live on the app? You know, where do people see them? Like, how, when do they get triggered? When do you receive them? How many of them are there? Are there going to be tiers? Can your friends see them? You know, like there's so many different things. There's so many layers to the badges that it took us a really long time. But it was for us, I think as a team, probably our most successful experiment because we were so excited about it. We spent so much time on it and it really, really worked out, not only for us, but other, other teams metrics too.
0: That's an amazing story. So for something like the badges or the streak or anything else you worked on, how important is it, do you think, to continue to to optimize those things over time rather than resting on your laurels? Do you start to see diminishing returns? Or when it's something that big, can you put it out there and, and move on to something else for a while?
1: Yeah, I think when you test something and the results are really good or really bad, you don't rest on your laurels. Like you you don't just say like, oh, that was really bad. Let's ignore it. Or that was really good. Let's leave it. You know that that has a really big impact. So now that you know that that has a really big impact, it's worth your time going and like trying to squeeze as much juice as you possibly can out of it or improve that feature as much as you can. So with badges... You know, we then went on to make tiered badges. So now if you can get like level one, level two, level three, and one was gold and one was silver, and to introduce other types of badges with other types of behaviors. And of course, other teams were all like, "Hey, can you can you do a badge for like getting people to do this?" You know, because they wanted their metric to be helped by badges and stuff like that. Same with streaks. We spent a long time thinking about how can what can we do with streaks and how can we make this experience even better because we know it matters to people. If you try something and you get like a whatever a really tiny. Percent change, then great. That, you know, if it's statistically significant and it's like worth the engineering costs and sort of like the, the code debts that's going into that, then you launch it, but you don't go back and keep trying and trying because you already know that it's not super impactful.
0: Awesome. Makes total sense. All right, Gina. Well, just for the last few minutes here, we've got a few lightning round questions that we're asking all of our growth related guests this spring. So short answers here are absolutely fine, but Should you want to expand on any, by all means, feel free. I won't stop you. Uh, Ready? Ready. Okay, let's do it. Favorite underused growth tactic?
1: I guess this is pretty obvious or maybe lame after everything I told you, but I would say PR is is an underused growth tactic just people think of PR as kind of this like side lane thing. You have to talk to journalists and convince them to write about you. And it's just, you know, kind of annoying, but especially if you work at a company where you really believe in what you're doing, or if you have amazing talent, or if your CEO is incredible, or if you're trying to change the world in some way that is actually significant and not Silicon Valley esque, then you have something on your hands and, and journalists are constantly looking for good stories and interesting people to interview. And I, I saw a lot of very clear growth wins from getting a lot of PR in all these different countries that I went to, and our our little kind of very obsessive compulsion was to make sure that journalists included a link to our site or to our app every time they published. which is hard to do because journalists don't like being told what to do. But I started being called Linkzilla Duolingo because it was my number one obsession, like we would get like tech crunch and I'd be like, wait, is there a link, is there a link? Because that makes a huge difference on whether people click and go to your site or just never think about you again.
0: I have heard more than a few PR people groan about that when seeing a story goes live, and it's definitely a really important piece of advice. It really
1: matters. Uh,
0: one book that's most influenced your thinking and why?
1: You know, I would really like to say that it's a really smart like, marketing growth type book. I would say that it's probably something earlier on in my life, and it's a little cliche today because of the movie that's coming out, but um, A Wrinkle in Time. I remember it a movie I read in seventh grade, and it really it really impacted me to this day. I still remember the term Tesseract. I haven't watched the movie yet, but basically it's like this idea of like folding time and, you know, letting like, it was, I don't remember. And I'm sorry if this is not accurate. This is from my seventh grade memory, but letting an ant walk on a string. And then if you fold the string such that your fingers touch, then the ant can like go from one point of the string to the next without having to walk through the whole thing. And that was like a way of traveling in time. And it just made me, I think it influenced how I think about everything and just how everything can be, thought of from a completely different perspective and that I ended up studying philosophy. So I, d- I wouldn't say that those two things are unrelated.
0: That's awesome. And speaking of influencing your thinking, who in the growth community do you look up to or think that we have the most to learn from?
1: Uh, there's a lot of incredibly smart people. I personally, I think Casey Winters is the bomb. He is not, a, he's kind of an obvious answer, I guess. He was a Pinterest for a long time. Now he's doing VC work, but he's just, you know, He's extremely smart. He really knows his stuff. There's none of what he's he's writing that's just like fluff. He shares his knowledge freely. That's been my experience so far. And also in person, he's just so, he comes across as so humble, you know, so he's not a guy trying to like boost his own bubble and he doesn't need to because I think that he's really that good.
0: One app or tool you can't live without these days?
1: Flow. Flow is an app for tracking your period. And it's important. It's important because it makes life so much easier. And it always it also helps you know whether or not you're fertile, which helps you make life decisions.
0: That is a great answer. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. What's a common mistake you've seen growth teams make when it comes to running experiments?
1: The number one is just kind of not getting really excited about growth and A-B testing and not really understanding statistical significance I don't understand it super well myself but I get what it is and it worked with engineers but definitely you should you should be able to know if something is statistically significant or not because otherwise your results mean nothing. And I think that a lot of times people like you're like oh we sent like thir- we sent 60 emails and like 25 people did this therefore the other one wins and you're like that doesn't mean anything. You know, so that's a waste of time. I also think that spending a lot of time on things that aren't quote unquote like big levers is a big mistake. So for example, we spent a really long time at Duolingo redesigning our emails um, and it was largely driven by our design team, which, you know, and to their credit, like I think Duolingo is where it is largely because of design. So they're, they're super important at Duolingo and they call a lot of shots and they really wanted to redesign our emails. Um, And it had no, no effect on any of our numbers. So from a branding perspective, that makes sense from like a user experience perspective. Sure. If your goal is to grow to improve retention or, you know, click through or whatever, that's not what you should be focusing on. And that's a huge time sink.
0: All right, Gina, this has been an absolute blast. Thanks so, so much for walking us back through your Duolingo lessons learned and insights. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, you are actually just moved into a new challenge yourself. You're going to be helping nonprofits with growth and marketing. So what are you most excited about with this new challenge you find yourself in and how are you settling into it?
1: you know, leaving Duolingo was super hard. I was there for five years and I, I feel like it's a very big part of my identity today. Like, you know, people recognize me as like Gina from Duolingo because I've given talks and all that. So it was a very difficult decision to make, but I'm really excited because I've always wanted to work with nonprofits. And I think that one of the things that they often lack is an understanding around sort of like marketing and growth and tech and that kind of thing, because they're really focused on making impacts. They're not focused so much on like telling the story or making sure that like their conversion rates for donations are super high. And I hope to take all these learnings from the for-profit world to apply to nonprofits and help them just more effectively raise money or do whatever it is that they want to do, tell their story, get people to care, et cetera. So I'm really excited about that. I'm also nervous because it's such a completely different sector. I have so much to learn and it's, it's a completely different world in terms of how you communicate and what you can and cannot say and you know what's okay so i'm, I'm learning tons uh on the job
0: Oh, well, and i'm sure there's a few things you're probably learning from that world too that you maybe wished you would have known or, or had in your back pocket when you were in your previous sector as well for sure great well thanks again and i hope we'll speak again in the future
1: awesome thank you so much for for having me i'm really excited to be on this podcast
0: you've been listening to the inside intercom podcast
1: For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.